the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later in the program, we're going to hear from Joel Rosenberg, his latest work of fiction, The Persian Gamble. Stick around for that. Well, there's a lot going on in the world. We're going to talk about it. But if you are discouraged about uh, what's going on and have lost hope that there's a possibility of reconciliation and relationships restored and unity, I want to encourage you to check out a new film that's coming out on the 5th of April. It's The Best of Enemies. It's a heartfelt and timely story that is little known. It's about an unlikely relationship and later friendship between two activists, both of whom are fearless. We're talking about Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis, who, against all odds, came together to help initiate change in their community of Durham, North Carolina. Now, at that time, segregation was fiercely resisted by white residents in the community, black Uh, Members of the community uh, wanted to see progress moving forward. And these two activists, Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis, they're played by um, uh, Taraji Henson and uh, C.P. Ellis. Uh, These two individuals, for the sake of their respective communities, decided that they would be willing to come together to try to resolve some of these issues. And the friendship that's forged, the the way the relationship is built and and strengthened and remains to this day is really quite an outstanding story. You will find inspiration, a sense of optimism that the divisiveness within our current times can, in fact, be healed. It's powerful, thought-provoking. Again, the title of the movie is The Best of Enemies in Theaters on April the fifth. You've got a local Ku Klux Klan leader who reluctantly co-chairs a community summit battling over desegregation of schools in Durham, North Carolina during the summer of 1971. The best of enemies. One of the best of movies as well. Encourage you to check that out. Well, Christopher Scalia, who is the son of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, told Fox News that the idea of increasing the number of justices on the high court is maybe an argument worth taking seriously, but added that some proposals by Democrat candidates were just unconstitutional. Um, It's a rather interesting conversation exchanged between the two as uh, we have discussed here that is one of the proposals currently being bandied about. And New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern said today that uh, announced rather the country was immediately banning military style semi-automatic weapons after last week's attack that killed 50 people at two mosques. Speaking to reporters, the prime minister said the weapons would be banned in addition to all assault rifles, among other firearms. She said legislation is currently being drafted and she expects the law to take effect by April 11th. For months, Kellyanne Conway, counselor to President Trump, was placed in an awkward position whenever her husband, George Conway, an attorney once considered for U.S. Solicitor General in the Trump administration, would attack her boss on Twitter. The attacks were as uh, cutting as anything said by any Democrat foe and often personal, and Trump remained uncharacteristically silent. Well, that all changed this week as the president responded on Wednesday by calling George Conway, well, a name. I'm not even going to repeat it on Twitter. Uh, For her part, Kellyanne Conway sided with the president, telling Political, you think you shouldn't 
uh, respond when somebody, a non-medical professional, accuses him of having a mental disorder. You think you should just take that sitting down, she asks. Well, Kellyanne is scheduled to um, continue to defend her boss and says that uh, while this is a public argument, it isn't having an impact on her life at home with her husband and family. Glad I'm not in that position. Well, less than three months after taking office, U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose favorability numbers have plummeted in some recent polls, is already front and center in a GOP congressional candidate's upcoming campaign ad. The 32nd spot obtained uh, by media and currently available on YouTube features uh, Michelle Nix, a candidate for North Carolina's 3rd Congressional District to replace the late Republican Representative Walter Jones Jr., who died in February. And the Los Angeles Angels and star outfielder Mike Trout had agreed or have agreed to a 12-year contract, the Cub announced uh, Wednesday evening. The Cub didn't immediately disclose the terms of that deal, but the Major League Baseball.com reported that Trout's new contract adds 10 years to his current deal, which is set to expire following the 2020 Major League Baseball season. The total contract is worth about $426.5 million. Can you imagine that, Clark? $426.5 million to play the game. I mean, they're athletes. They work out and all that. But to play the game, that much money. I mean, you and I don't get half that for having fun here in the studio. Anyway, it's the largest deal in North American sports history. Wow. Wow. Well, blue states are getting crushed by red states, and it's a big source of embarrassment for the liberals because they don't have a very good explanation for it. Well, that's according to economist Stephen Moore, co-author of Rich States, Poor States, Alec Laffer State Economic Competitiveness Index. Well, as the Daily Signal pointed out, the latest report ranks Utah at number one in economic outlook for the 11th year in a row. New York landed at the bottom of the list at number 50. The corollary, every day in America, Moore said, 1,000 people flee states with high tax rates and migrate to states with lower tax rates. And a new report in the New York Post piles on additional evidence. Forty-one percent of city dwellers say they can't cope with New York's high cost of living, according to the Quinnipiac poll published on Wednesday. Separately, 41 percent fear they'll be forced to pull up stakes and seek greener pastures where the economic climate is more welcoming. And U.S. Customs say they are overwhelmed. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol on Tuesday released 50 migrants recently detained at the border near McCollin, Texas, due to a lack of space in the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Centers they would otherwise be sent to while waiting asylum hearings, according to the National Review, which also says the migrants released Tuesday represent just the first wave of a group of hundreds whom they will be forced to release in the coming days. We'll talk more about that later in the program, to a lack of resources. As one CB, uh, CBP official uh, put it, it is a crisis. It's not a self-proclaimed crisis. And according to an analysis by the Heritage Foundation economist Tori Whitting, in 2018, the Council of Economic Advisors reports $14.4 billion in revenue was collected from goods subject to new tariffs. Put another way, the Trump administration increased taxes on Americans by $14.4 billion last year. Tariffs typically benefit a small group of people, leaving these uh, costs to be dispersed across the economy. Trump unquestionably has good intentions, but tariffs inevitably hamper the U.S. economy. Now, the plan is to put pressure on China with these tariffs and that they would fold and eventually they'd be withdrawn. But that has not yet happened. And the central bank has made some relatively major changes in its uh, agenda. According to the CNBC, the Federal Reserve decided uh, Wednesday to hold interest rates steady and indicated that no more hikes will be coming this year. 
which represents a sharp, dovish turn from public projections just three months earlier. Additionally, the move came along with reduced expectations for growth domestic, um, gross domestic product growth and inflation and a bump higher in the unemployment rate outlook for a central bank not so long intent on normalizing policy from its financial crisis era accommodation levels. The development at this week's meeting represents a striking change in direction. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and yeah, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, the media is looking for anything it can to cudgel the president's EPA decisions, according to the Washington Free Beacon. The number of Freedom of Information Act requests the Environmental Protection Agency received from mainstream outlets spiked immediately after the president took office. The New York Times has already bombarded uh, Trump's EPA with 100 FOIA solicitations. Obama's EPA was hit with just 13 of, uh, of them between 2013 and 2016. The Washington Post solicited Obama's EPA just once from 2013 to 2016, which jumps to 43 under the current administration. The same goes for Politico, The Hill, CNN, BuzzFeed and ABC News, as well as others. This is a search and destroy campaign born out of policy disagreements with the EPA's current overhead, and it will not end soon. Well, Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin on Tuesday signed a bill that bans abortions chosen on the basis of an unborn child's sex, race, or disability. Physicians must now certify in writing that the patient did not request the abortion for a reason related to the baby's sex, race, or disabilities. Flouting the new law puts doctors at risk of losing their medical license or being prosecuted for a felony, although the mother of the unborn child would not be targeted. And on this day in 2018, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg apologizes for a major breach of trust, as he put it, after news that data mining from firm Cambridge Analytica, whose clients included the Trump campaign, may have used data improperly obtained from Facebook users to try to sway elections. And on this day in 2006, the social media website Twitter is established with the sending of the first tweet by co-founder Jack Dorsey, who wrote, just setting up my Twitter. And there was no E, by the way. It's just uh, T-W-T-T-R. And on this day in 1963, Alvarez uh, Federal Prison in San Francisco Bay is emptied of its last inmates and closed at the order of Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Well, today, the caliphate that crumbled... Uh, And the final offensive is over. While the official announcement hasn't yet been made, um, we've been told that this uh, the village, the last ISIS stronghold, has been liberated. It's the first time since we've been here in um, uh, Syria, the United States, uh, that the uh, bombs have stopped dropping and the gunfire has disappeared. Uh, There's been an end to the caliphate, the brutal empire that once ruled over 8 million people. It is gone. Troops there are now bringing down the black flags of ISIS. The flags no longer fly over the town that instilled fear in 8 million. Well, the last five days, um, we've witnessed uh, the major offensive up close with U.S.-backed SDF forces attacking ISIS from three sides, pushing the fighters back house to house, then tent to tent against the Euphrates River. Inside uh, one area, you can see how um, how they hid so long, not just in tunnels, but trenches and hundreds of cubby holes covered by uh, uh, tarps, which blend in perfectly with the dirt. But in the end, the majority surrendered. In fact, since the start of the year, about 60,000 have um, uh, 
dripped into the desert, and most are now held in camps. There's a major concern about what to do with the camps, though. The SDF has asked the U.S. to support setting up a tribunal to prosecute them. This final corner of the caliphate was uh, in the far eastern desert of Syria. It was where ISIS first captured territory, and it was where they finally lost. A clearing operation is now underway in the town, and an announcement um, made about the end of hostilities. Meanwhile, U.S. President Trump said on Thursday it was time to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights that Israel seized from Syria back in 1967, marking a dramatic shift in U.S. policy and giving a boost to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in the middle of his own re-election campaign. The disrupted area was captured by Israel in the 1967 Middle Eastern War and annexed in 1981 in a move not recognized internationally. Netanyahu has pressed the United States to recognize its claim and raise that possibility in his first White House meeting with Trump in February of 2017. Trump wrote on Twitter that after 52 years, it's time for the United States to fully recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is of crucial strategic and security importance to the state of Israel and regional stability. Well, the president's move appeared to be his most overt yet to help Netanyahu, who is locked in a closely contested race on the 9th of April, an election while also fighting allegations of corruption, which he denies. Netanyahu arrives in Washington next week to meet with the president and address the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or AIPAC, lobbying group. President Trump said in an interview uh, that uh, he did not intend his move as an explicit election boost for Netanyahu. I hear he's doing okay. I don't know if he's uh, doing great right now, but I hear he's doing okay, and went on from there. Uh, The president, whose decision last year to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, angered Palestinians, faced some criticism for his latest move as well. No surprise there. Neither America nor Israel, neither Trump nor Netanyahu can change the historical fact that the Golan lands are Syrian lands and they will remain Syrian lands, says the member of the Druze community in the Israeli-occupied Golan. Uh, Netanyahu thanked Trump for the Golan Heights gesture, saying you made history Uh, He told Trump in a phone call after the announcement, according to the prime minister's office, Netanyahu had been expected to raise the issue again with Trump during his visit to Washington, according to Israeli officials. At a time when Iran seeks to use Syria as a platform to destroy Israel, President Trump boldly recognizes Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Thank you, President Trump. Netanyahu wrote in a tweet. Well, the American Bar Association is warning of an existential crisis over the unprecedented surge of the number of immigration cases clogging up the courts. In a new 176-page report that repeatedly wraps the Trump administration's policies, the American Bar Association, or ABA, said that the backlog in immigration courts is over one million. But there's no crisis at the border. Crucially, the number of cases pending before the immigration courts, which were about 262,000 cases at the time of the 2010 report, has increased to unprecedented levels. There were more than 760,000 pending cases at the end of 2018 and an additional 330,000 cases that could be returned to active dockets in short order, it said in revealing the latest accurate numbers. Without fast changes, the lawyers group added the immigration court system will collapse. President Trump has sought to increase the core of immigration court judges, uh, but has yet to succeed. Today, the immigration courts are facing an existential crisis in light of the fundamental change, uh, fundamentally changed nature of the threat to the immigration court system. The overall conclusion is that the current system is irredeemably dysfunctional and on the brink of collapse. 
the report said. And President Trump today signed an executive order to promote free speech on college campuses by threatening colleges with a loss of federal research funding if they do not protect those rights. Now, there are already laws that do the same, that link free speech with uh, the, this kind of um, censorship, if you will. Uh, this would go a step further and is more symbolic than uh, it is uh, legal. We're here to take historic action to defend American students and American values, the president said, surrounded by conservative student activists at the signing ceremony. They've been under siege. Well, under the guise of speech codes, safe spaces, trigger warnings, these universities have tried to restrict free speech, impose total conformity, and shut down the voices of great young Americans like those here today, the president said. A senior administration official said the order directs 12 grant-making agencies to use their authority and can in uh, coordination with the White House Office of Management and Budget to ensure institutions that receive federal research or education grants promote free speech and free inquiry. White House officials have said it will apply to um, more than $35 billion in grants. And House Republicans have lost the majority, but they're not giving up the bullhorn that they've uh, used to challenge the Russia probe narrative. With a frenzied anticipation over the, con- uh, the conclusion of the special counsel Robert Mueller's probe, we're being told now it's going to be out any minute again. The top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee has made a mission of publishing a slew of transcripts from closed-door interviews by the panel dating back to the GOP majority. Last week, ranking member Doug Collins uh, unilaterally published hundreds of pages from interviews with former FBI director, or officials rather, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, containing juicy details about the anti-Trump so-called insurance policy concerning the Russia probe, their affair, and even the steps the Department of Justice officials allegedly took to avoid serious charges for Hillary Clinton during the 2016 email investigation. And that's just the start. There's plenty more, we're being told, at least 20 or more transcripts as part of this investigation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Joel Rosenberg. His latest work of fiction is out. We'll talk with him about that and what it tells us about what's actually happening on the ground, or at least could happen. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, I'm so excited about this next hour because we have the opportunity to talk with Joel Rosenberg, who once again has proven his ability to foreshadow geopolitical realities as a leader in fact-based fiction. With his newest political thriller out uh, in the middle of this month, The Persian Gamble. Um, uh, one of his... Um, Uh, Observers pointed out that this is the boldest, most daring thriller to date, saying it offers up a terrifying glimpse of where the conflict between Russia and the United States could be headed. And I would certainly agree. Well, this is Joel Rosenberg's 14th book. It's based off his research and uh, trips to the West Wing in the White House, the Kremlin, the tunnels under the DMZ between North and South Korea, the presidential palace in Cairo, the royal palace in Amman. And the brutal streets of Kabul in Afghanistan. Yeah, I know. How does he do it all? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Well, Joel Rosenberg has garnered high-powered fans ranging from presidents, prime ministers, kings to CIA directors, dozens of members of the U.S. House and Senate. In addition to entertaining readers worldwide as a a fiction author, he also regularly meets with world leaders, serves as a news expert regarding the threat of Russia and the danger of 
evil if it's ignored. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times bestselling author of 14 novels and five nonfiction books with nearly 5 million copies sold. He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. Uh, He's married and he and his family live in uh, Israel. We're just delighted to have Joel Rosenberg back. I look forward to this and just uh, I figure the time between books is just, you know, waiting for the next one to come out. Joel Rosenberg, welcome. Hey, Georgine. Great to be with you again. Thank you for having me on the show. It's good to have you back. Well, this latest book, The Persian Gamble, uh, brings together elements that are much in the headlines today, but in a way painting a scenario of what could happen if events were to move in a particular direction. And I know one of the things that impresses us most about your writing is that you seem to have uh, not just insight, but foresight in terms of, of the worst case scenario, uh, should people not take evil as seriously as they ought? Well, in this case, the Persian Gamble, um, the regime in, in Tehran, the Iranian regime, uh, is secretly trying to buy five operational, uh, fully operational nuclear warheads uh, from North Korea. Uh, they're trying to do this uh, secretly because publicly the Iranian regime is claiming that they are adhering to the uh, famous Iran nuclear deal that President Obama and the Western powers negotiated with Iran uh, several years ago. So, uh, as you may recall, in the actual Iran nuclear deal, uh, the U.S. and the Western powers gave Iran $150 billion in cash uh, to say yes, uh, essentially, to um, to this nuclear deal. But in the novel, The Persian Gamble, Iran is using that money to secretly buy these five fully operational nuclear warheads from North Korea. So now, admittedly, this is, this is fiction, right? Where I'm not this is not, this is not uh, you know a Bob Woodward book. Yeah. It's not a story of what's really happening, and yet it's I think it's a chillingly plausible scenario given the fact that right now uh, North Korea has between 20 and 60 fully operational nuclear warheads. They've been testing their nuclear warheads, and they seem ready to go. And that's why, uh, in real life, President Trump was in in Hanoi last week uh, trying to negotiate with the North Koreans to give up these weapons because, God forbid, if they don't get rid of them, they're going to either use them or sell them. Now, you in the book, you... Um have the world powers of Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea uh, collaborating together in what would be a a holy terror uh, if it were to develop in the way that you um, outline in the book. And certainly, again, is very plausible. Uh, You also have a former U.S. Secret Service agent, Marcus Riker, who is a character that continues from your, your previous book, um, tell us why these three captured the uh, the focus of this next addition to your series. Right. Well, you know, in some ways, uh, they seem an unlikely uh, trio uh, to form an axis of evil. Um, the, the the actual real life government of Russia is very very different from the government in Iran, mm-hmm. which is very different. Uh, in turn, from the leadership of North Korea, right? Uh, Vladimir Putin is is, is a, an imperialist. He's a modern 21st century Russian czar. That's how he. That's how Putin sees himself. Uh, the leader of North Korea. How does he see himself? Kim Jong Un 
as a god, you know, as a megalomaniacal uh, dictator of a communist regime. Then you go to Iran, how does the Ayatollah Khomeini or Khamenei uh, see himself? Well, he sees himself as the John the Baptist laying the groundwork, as it were, for the Islamic uh, Messiah, known as the 12th Imam, who's going to come and reign over the entire world and force us all to you know, convert to Islam or die. Those are three very different governments, and yet, uh, and yet in real life, uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and the North Koreans are, are building a military alliance that maybe hasn't gone as far as what I'm portraying in the Persian Gamble, but, but, if, if, but they are working closely together. And the question is why? The reason why Moscow, Pyongyang, and Tehran work so closely together in real life is because of their deep, deep hatred of the United States mm-hmm. and the Western alliance. And their, uh, that, that, that hatred uh, is an incredibly risky and dangerous situation for us in America and for all of our allies because, you know, maybe Russia isn't crazy enough to actually launch a nuclear weapon at us, but North Korea and Iran might be. And uh, right now, North Korea has the weapons, Iran is trying to get the weapons. North Korea has the ICBMs that can reach America. Iran wants those ICBMs. So uh, it's an incredibly dangerous alliance. So the, the, uh, the common enemy being the United States is what holds them together. But is that sufficient to hold them together through what could be a major conflict? And what happens if they succeed? Because as you've just described, these are three very different uh, leaders, very different um, countries with different styles and goals. That's right. And in the Persian Gamble, um, you get a sense of, of the differences, even uh, while um, watching how and why they might work closely together. Um, ultimately, Russia wants to be the leader of, of this alliance. Uh, they're trying to form an alliance with a lot of other countries, not just Uh, North Korea and Iran. But in North Korea and Iran, they've got two of the most dangerous rogue regimes uh, on the planet in the history of mankind. And, uh, you know, the idea that that one of these countries can control the destiny of the others, uh, even if they want to, is... uh, that's a problematic idea, and, and, and that's what was happening in the Persian gamble is you've got uh, the, uh, the North Koreans who have these weapons, but, they're, they're, but their people are starving, and they're, and they're crying out for cash because of all these economic sanctions. Rather than make peace, they're trying to make money by selling military hardware uh, secretly. So the question is, might they get so desperate that they decide to sell nuclear weapons right off the shelf uh, to Iran, which has a lot of money and is desperately trying to get these weapons. And that's where my former Secret Service agent, former Marine uh, Marcus Riker, finds himself right in the middle of this vortex of evil uh, and begins to pick up on uh, the rumors that uh, North Korea is about to make this deal with Iran and Riker has to figure out, is it true, and how do I confirm it, and then how do I intercept it and thwart it from happening? Now, your um, books, as I've mentioned, tend to reflect uh, what's going on geopolitically with a great deal of insight. From your perspective, do you want your readers um, to be, uh, do you see this as a cautionary tale? 
Uh, do you see this as pure entertainment? What do you hope your readers come away with uh, when they've looked at what is likely the worst case scenario may not happen, might may not be likely, but could happen? What do you uh, hope to accomplish? Well, I guess all uh, I've got a lot of objectives, but the number one Georgine, by far is to entertain people. Right. If I don't keep you up all night till you're cursing me on Twitter or Facebook <laughs> or some form of social media at five or six o'clock in the morning because you've been reading all night, telling yourself just, just one more chapter, and suddenly it's time to go to work. <laughs> if you're not cursing me, then I have not done my job. Uh, that, you know, people don't have the time or the money to waste uh, on you know, 28 bucks or whatever or retail to, on, on a story that's made up. You know, I'm amazed to sell five million <laughs> copies of things that are not true. Um, I mean, some of the books that I wrote are, are nonfiction, so that's that's different. But the vast majority of what I write are completely made up. And to hold someone to the first chapter, to the next chapter, to every single page, um, and to, and and to have them be, you know, just intensely interested in, in what's going to happen, how this story is going to end, uh, is very hard to do. Uh, especially when it's not just regular, ordinary people like you and me who are reading it. It's um, the Vice President of the United States reads these books. Uh, Mike Pence, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo reads these books. Um, you know, it's the King Abdullah of Jordan reads these books. Former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Why are they reading these books? Like, they know they have more access to more dangerous things uh, than any of us. And yet, so, so, so writing a novel that can entertain and hold their yeah. attention yeah. is extremely different, difficult. Now, it's also true that I'm trying to educate and inspire and warn, and there's a lot of things going on in these novels, um, because I think a lot of Americans know, oh, I, I, I know I should know more about the North Korean problem. Trump is over there trying to fix it and the Iranian problem and the Russians, but I don't have the time or interest to get, you know, up to speed on, you know, read hundreds, you know, 900 page books on the history of this country or that. So, right. So reading a high speed political thriller, if it's well constructed, you know, you have an opportunity to sort of learn the issues without realizing that you're learning it because, because I'm taking you on this high-speed yeah. uh, thrill ride where your heart is pounding, and you forget that your brain is actually learning something. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking this afternoon with Joel Rosenberg. His forthcoming novel portrays the terrifying national threat of a North Korea, Iran, and Russia nuclear alliance. More on The Persian Gamble when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation this afternoon with New York Times bestselling author um, Joel Rosenberg, his latest new political thriller, The Persian Gamble, it closely mirrors events uh, in the Middle East. Now, the president just had his uh, second summit with Kim Jong-un. There were those in this country who wanted to see it fail for political reason. There were others who wanted desperately to see uh, this uh, talk move forward toward denuclearization. The South Koreans were hopeful. How, from your perspective and your knowledge base, how likely was it that this was going to be anything more than a photo op? And do you think the uh, uh, the Trump administration is prepared sufficiently to move forward in a constructive way that 
can lead to denuclearization? Well, it's a good question, Georgine. Um, I have been supportive of President Trump's efforts to get the North Koreans to the table and to try to convince uh, Kim Jong-un, the the dear leader of uh, North Korea, that it is in his personal interest Mm -hmm. to give up the nuclear weapons program, uh, scrap that, make peace with South Korea, um, have all the economic sanctions removed, and join the global economy. This is how his people are going to eat. And this is how ultimately his regime will be safe because uh, because it will have some degree of legitimacy of, of at least taking care of the people rather than enslaving and starving them. Uh, now, I, I think what I think there's a lot of skepticism that it's going to work, and I, I share the skepticism, yeah. but I don't share the cynicism. Right? You have a lot of people on the left who are who are acting. This is ridiculous. What is what is President Trump even bothering? Even what what is he? What kind of idiot does he think he is that he can make a deal with a rogue regime like North Korea? But they weren't saying that when President Obama was dealing with the rogue regime of Iran. Now the problem. So so so. I was not opposed to Obama negotiating with Iran, but I was opposed to him making a terrible deal where Iran gets everything and where we get nothing. And that's why I I think that President Trump was right. Once he realized, look, these guys are not ready yet. Maybe they will be in six months or a year, but they're not ready now. So he walked away. He didn't give them um, all the concessions that North Korea wanted, and that shocked North Korea. Because North Korea, you know, many regimes, or I'm sorry, many American presidents, Clinton and Obama, for example, uh, but the Bush team, too, made deals with uh, North Korea that, uh, that were useless. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was good for Trump to, to try, also good for him to walk away. Do you think Kim Jong-un has any inkling that giving up his nuclear weapons in exchange for legitimacy and the ability to provide for his people is even something he's taking seriously? You know, I think he is taking it seriously. I just think he's testing how serious Trump is, Hmm. right? I mean, if you can get something for nothing, why not get it? You know, know, the Iranians tested Obama, and they found out that Obama wanted the deal more than they did, and therefore they, they, were persu- they were able to persuade Obama to take a really, really bad deal. Uh, they were not able, uh, the North Koreans were not able to persuade that of Trump. Now, is that still a risk? Yeah, it's a risk. Anytime you start to engage in, uh, in negotiations, uh, then there's a risk that you'll take a bad deal over no deal. But uh, Trump didn't, um, and I was encouraged by that. Because, you know, Trump is still, uh, look, there's things I support about him, and there's th- things that make me nervous about him. And so I wasn't quite sure what he was going to do. Yeah. But I have to tell you, I do like Secretary Pompeo. I know him personally. I do like John Bolton. I know him personally. These are tough guys. They're smart guys. And I think with them at President Trump's side, uh, there's, there's as good a shot as there's going to be at trying to see whether the North Koreans are ready to to give up. And imagine if they did. It would really be a great, great development. Oh, absolutely. Now, in your, um, your forthcoming novel, The Persian Gamble, North Korea continues to be the, the sort of hermit country that's desperate for resources to continue. Uh, and is that what motivates them in The Persian Gamble? 
uh, to ally itself with Russia and Iran in making their nuclear weapons available? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the alliance between uh, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, that already exists. Um, but what we haven't seen, and what I interject, uh, inject rather, uh, into the Persian gamble, is this idea that North Korea might secretly sell the actual, you know, five of the nuclear warheads that they actually have already built or, you know, have received from another country, Russia. So that, I think, is fiction at the moment. But, uh, but again, North Korea is so desperate for cash uh, that, and, and oil that it, it's not implausible. I think it is plausible that North Korea might find themselves willing to make a deal with Iran for cash and for oil. Uh, to you know, to to give up five nuclear warheads which they're not using to get money and oil that they do they would use. Uh, yeah, I think that's possible, and that's what terrifies me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to put my my hero uh, Marcus Riker right in the middle of that and say, okay, fix that, figure that out. And that was a tough. Uh, but a fun novel to write. Yeah. Now, The Persian Gamble follows the success of your 2018 novel, The Kremlin Conspiracy, and it portrayed the growing tension between the United States and Russia. And again, your um, your main character, former U.S. Secret Service agent Marcus Riker, um, is smack dab in the middle of all this as well. Now, it seemed like he was sort of sidelined. He was no longer going to have a, a, an official position, but he is he's sort of drawn back into all of this drama as events unfold. That's right. Marcus Riker is the hero of these stories, and he's a former uh, in, uh, combat veteran from the Marines. He served uh, multiple tours of duty in combat um, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and then came home, um, of course, got married. Uh, well, not of course, unless you've read the book, but anyway, mm-hmm. gets married to his high school sweetheart, and then joins the United States Secret Service, um, and serves first as a junior agent running counterfeiters down, but eventually working up to the elite presidential protective detail where he's protecting the president of the United States and actually wins a, a Medal of Valor uh, being wounded in the process of being uh, uh, protecting the president. So this is who my character is, but through a series of tragedies that I, I won't mention on the air now, people have to read it, some seriously bad things happen in his life. And so we watch Riker uh, sort of emerge into the height of his, you know, sort of heroic uh, history. And then he sinks down into leaving government, leaving the Secret Service, uh, retiring because of some personal tragedies in his life. And he's trying to figure out what to do next and how to, you know, how to pick himself up off, off the real pain. And that's where some friends say, hey, come with us to Moscow. We've got, you know, the senator going on a trip. Maybe you can, you know, provide some security and some counsel. And and he finds himself in the exact wrong place hmm. at the exact right time. And uh, that's the Kremlin conspiracy. And uh, the two books really are linked uh, symbiotically. I mean, it, ideally, you've read the Kremlin conspiracy and then you read the Persian Gamble. But I tried to write the Persian Gamble such that if someone hasn't read yeah. the past book, they could pick it up and get right into it and, and not miss a beat. Well, and again, it's it's amazing how uh, what you write reflects what we're seeing and a, a scenario that could, we hope and pray doesn't, but could be plausible 
uh, in the future. One of the things that marks the the quality of your writing is that you do an extraordinary amount of research to make your thrillers as realistic and timely as possible. How how do you gain the kind of access that gives you that kind of insight? Yeah, well, it's a good question, Georgine. I, I, I didn't set out with a strategy, but I think part of the benefit was um, being involved in politics for more than a decade. Admittedly, I was a failed political consultant, so all of my candidates lost. Um, but one of my candidates was Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, and others uh, were people who opened doors for me uh, as friends to other very interesting leaders. So, so part of it is being having lived in Washington for a quarter of a century, now moving to Israel, living in Israel, meeting with all these people. But then also the fact that after five million copies of these books sold, they they earn certain types of fans, mm-hmm. and some of them are former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Some of them are former you know, or current kings or presidents or prime ministers. President George W. Bush has been reading the last couple of novels and sent me very nice notes about them. It's very very thoughtful. But what happens is doors open, and you end up meeting people who are in current office at high-level intelligence or military or political roles, or they're former, either way, uh, and some are Americans, some are foreigners, but they will invite you to come and spend time with them and ask them a thousand questions, and they ask you, and the next thing you know, you are gathering a lot of really interesting information. Let me give you one example. Uh Uh, So this is a political thriller about the threat of Iran to the United States, to Israel, and to our Arab allies in the Middle East. I'm not sure about this, but I I believe I'm the only American political thriller writer who's ever actually met with the leaders of of the United, uh, not only the United States and Israel, but Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Jordan, and have been to all of the, you know, not only to the White House, but been to the palaces in each of those Arab countries to spend hours of time talking to these leaders at the most senior level, uh, the princes, the kings, the crown, the crown princes, the presidents, talking about Iran, the Iran threat and other issues, and talking to their top intelligence chiefs and their foreign ministers. It's a very interesting way. You know, I, I don't know if you can – I'm not sure if it's a strategy. <laughs> it happens to have opened up, and it, I, mean, I think it adds a lot of flavor, a lot of nuance into these novels. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with New York Times bestselling author set to release a new political thriller, The Persian Gamble, closely mirroring events uh, in the Middle East. Joel Rosenberg, my guest. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're talking with the New York Times bestselling author, Joel Rosenberg. His uh, uh, book, The Kremlin Conspiracy, uh, precedes this book, his latest international thriller about a terrifying nuclear alliance among three world powers, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, and the man who has to halt their deadly strategy. The book is titled The Persian Gamble, and we're talking about this book that is a must-read. And you need to time when you're going to do it, because as you mentioned earlier, uh, you don't want to start right before you, you're planning to go to sleep because you will 
uh, you won't be able to um, to put the book down. Uh, let me ask you about since you brought up Benjamin Netanyahu, how serious are the political um, difficulties that we're hearing about here? Uh, and in terms of his political future and the election that's coming up in April. Yeah, uh, well, he's in big trouble. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, has been investigated on four different um, corruption um, cases. Uh, the Attorney General of Israel has just announced that he's going to indict uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on three of those cr- uh, criminal corruption cases. It, it involves um, bribery, uh, it involves all kinds of uh, very uh, bad <laughs> allegations. Now, you know, the man's presumed innocent until he's proven guilty. But when you have an attorney general um, who's, you know, indicted a, a sitting prime minister uh, on three major counts of corruption that are three entirely different cases at the same time, uh, this does not bode well. Um, his election, you know, numbers are falling already, and the election in Israel will be April 9th. So, um you know, Netanyahu is is close to being the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel. He served for three years during the 1990s, 1996 through 1999. He lost re-election then. I was on his comeback campaign team in 2000. We were thwarted, and it took him nine years to come back. But he's been the prime minister now for ten more years. So he is a man who knows how to win, even when the chips are down. But I don't know exactly how he gets out of this one. This is, uh, this is the most serious challenge he's ever faced. And remember, you know, what a lot of Israelis, even who admire him for what he's done with the economy and foreign policy and protecting Israel, um, still a, a sitting prime minister who wants to be prime minister again, but is going to have to spend a lot of his time every day working on his legal defense, that means he's not paying attention to the needs of the country for that many hours every day, every week. And that's going to be weighing on the minds of voters who think maybe he ought to do something else and we need somebody else. So uh, we may be approaching the end of the Netanyahu era. Mm. Uh, Are these criminal charges and what's the worst case scenario if he is found guilty? Yeah, he could go to prison for a long long time. Uh, you know, we've, Israel plays hardball with its p- political leaders, meaning it, um, uh, just a few years ago, uh, a sitting prime minister, Ehud Olmert, mm-hmm. was indicted uh, for, for things he had done allegedly prior to becoming prime minister. He was mayor of Jerusalem when those crimes uh, were allegedly done. But in the end, he had to step down from being prime minister he was uh, indicted, he was convicted, and he went to prison. Uh, and years before that, uh, a sitting prime, or a president of Israel, Moshe Katsav, was indicted and uh, removed from office and went to prison for uh, uh, sexual um, uh, crimes uh, committed in office. So those are just two recent examples in the last 10 or 15 years of cases that, you know, it's not like, you know, in the United States, we've only had Richard Nixon in that situation, and he was pardoned. And of course, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, but not convicted. And, you know, so American leaders have never gone to prison 
uh, if you're the president of the United States. But in Israel, they do. Yeah. Now, he would be the first to be indicted in office, I understand. Well, I heard somebody say that, but I, uh, my recollection is that Ehud Olmert was sitting, was. Uh, the sitting prime minister when he was indicted. So, um, but he ended up, uh, he ended up quitting and stepping out of the prime minister's role. He didn't run again because his coalition was falling apart. You know, sometimes, you know, Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, says he won't step down. And I believe him, but the possibility exists that people who would be natural coalition members of his government might decide not to sit with an indicted prime minister. And that could cause his government to collapse or his next coalition, if he were to win the election, to collapse and, you know, unravel. Lots of twists and turns ahead, but Israel is facing uh, one of its most challenging seasons in terms of uh, uh, compromised leadership. Yeah. Well, let's talk about his political opponent. Uh, obviously, the economy, national security are major issues there. Um, are his opponents or is his opponent uh, up to the task of uh, assuming leadership in those areas in particular? Well, it's a great question, Georgine, because uh, the party that has formed, the new party formed to run against him, is uh, is made up of three former chiefs of staff of the Israeli military and, um, and the leader of another um, opposition um, party. So uh, they certainly have a lot of military experience. But uh, the the leader of that party is a is a former you know general named Benny Gantz G A N T Z in English Benny Gantz Benny Gantz it was a very impressive chief of staff of the Israeli military. However, he's never served in parliament. He's never run for office, and it's not the same running an army where everyone has to salute and do what you say yeah. to running a government where. You know, the Israeli government is a parliamentary system, and it is a knockdown, drag-out, no-holds-barred political process. Uh, Benny Gantz has never been part of it. I'm not saying he can't do it, but he is a novice at, at this, not a novice at being a leader, but this is a very different type of leadership. Moreover, Gantz is trying to run for prime minister by just being not Bibi Netanyahu, and and that's why he's popular, because he's not, you know, he's not invited. He's not, uh, he's not been around forever. He hasn't built a lot of enemies. But Gantz is making a big mistake, because he's not telling us what his views are, what his policies will be. He's being very uh, cagey about that. And I have a problem with someone who says, please give me the keys to the car, but I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to drive. That's a problem, and he may fix that in the next you know, 40 days. We'll see. But at the moment, you have a very impressive leader who's not telling us where he's going to take the country. And that, that, so that causes people to be concerned. If you were to predict the outcome of the election, what would you say? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier for me to make things up in a political thriller like the Persian Gamble than to, than to, to speculate on what's going to play out in the Israeli political process, just as it was almost impossible to imagine that uh, Donald Trump, who having never run for president, never served, never served in the military, never served in government, was going to defeat the entire Bush dynasty and the Clinton dynasty and become the president of the United States. Like, I did not see that coming. Most people did not. 
So uh, it would have made a great novel, but I didn't even think of it. <laughs> yeah, who could have thought of that? We're well, gonna... <laughs> that would have been quite a, quite a novel, but it was even stranger than fiction. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. Again, we're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his forthcoming novel, The Persian Gamble, a great read. You're not going to want to put it down, so you know, time your reading accordingly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm uh, wrapping up my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest novel is out. It's a new political thriller, The Persian Gamble. You'll recognize former U.S. Uh, Secret Service agent Marcus Riker. There's another character that's also introduced into this uh, version, a Russian double agent. And it is uh, one of those page turners that you're not going to want to put down. It's a great follow-up to the Kremlin conspiracy. But if you haven't read that one yet, you can still pick it up right at the Persian Gamble. Uh, I will warn you, though, you're going to want to go back and and, uh, read the uh, previous uh, novels as well. Uh, Well, this is an exciting um, uh, book. It's an exciting entry into your series of of, uh, books that really hold us spellbound thinking about what could uh, could happen. As we mentioned, you have a great deal of access to uh, political and national leaders. Um, Do you find that your books sometimes influence uh, their thinking, or do you find that you're more influenced by their thinking in terms of how you structure your books, or is it a little bit of both? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I will note that uh, uh, the Kremlin conspiracy is now out in paperback, so uh, for people who want to get it a little cheaper and read it uh, before the Persian Gamble uh, comes out on uh, March 12th, I would encourage you to do that. It's also available on ebook and audio. You know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I've never had one of these national leaders or world leaders tell me that they had made some di- different type of decision, you know, based on reading one of my novels. Uh, I would say, by and large, they're influencing me primarily. But but there must be something in these books that that hook their interests. Uh, and you know, I guess what I hope is happening, but they're not telling me this, but what I hope is happening is they're, they're thinking about threats, mm-hmm. materializing that they might not have sort of connected the dots quite that way. You know, you, don't, you can't assume that just because somebody is the president of the United States or the vice president or the king of a certain country um, or the prime minister that they thought of every scenario, right? It's true that they have access to much more intelligence and they have more insight and experience than I do, but... Sometimes when you read a scenario that's written out, spelled out in a novel form, it's very different from reading an intelligence document. And uh, so I'm hopeful. For example, you know, you and I talked last year about the threat of Russia launching a fast, super fast invasion of one of the Baltic countries, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, which are NATO countries. And if Russia were to do that really fast, like in about 96 hours, swallow up one of these small NATO countries, um, people would say, well, you know, Putin would never do that or Russia would never do that because attacking a NATO country would trigger Article 5, which would mean all of NATO would have to go to war against Russia. That seems crazy, except the way I wrote the, the Kremlin conspiracy suggests what if a Russian leader captured a NATO country, a small NATO country, quickly, and then dared NATO, are you really going to go to nuclear war to save Estonia, to save Latvia? Most Americans don't even know where these countries are. You're really going to risk nuclear war? 
And when you think about it that way, you realize, I think, uh, or I, I guess that's my premise for Kremlin's conspiracy, was that Russia could completely unravel the entire NATO alliance by doing something we think he, they would never do. Strike fast, capture a small country, NATO country, and then dare us to go to nuclear war to get it back. I honestly don't think we would. And that would be in the end of Article 5. No one would believe us that Article 5 really meant anything. And that would be the end of the NATO alliance. It could be, if the Russians invaded one of those countries tonight, by next week, the NATO alliance could be over. And I think when you read a novel like that, and you think, whoa, that's crazy, but is it crazy? Um, that's where I think, I guess I hope, um, I could influence a leader you know, at the senior level of our government uh, to just think about something that they never thought about before. And in that case, just there's, there was a simple antidote, and that is put more troops in the NATO countries, uh, in the Baltics, so that no Russian leader would be tempted to think that these are countries that are too lightly defended and could be grabbed quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is titled The Persian Gamble. It's out in bookstores on the 12th. I would highly recommend you read it. I haven't quite finished, but I'm on the edge of my chair. In fact, we need to finish our conversation so I can finish the book. Joe Rosenberg, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Georgine. Always great to be with you. Sorry it's not in person. <laughs> maybe sometime. We'll look forward to that. I maybe. like that. Okay, bye-bye. Again, The Persian Gamble. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Houston Public Library hosted a story time for kids last September. I mean, what kid doesn't like to hear stories? Well, the twist is that cross-dressing transsexuals were the ones doing the reading for the Drag Queen Storytime series. The newly revealed twist is that one of them is a convicted sex offender, an adult man who assaulted an eight-year-old boy more than a decade ago. Well, after a private group called Houston Mass Resistance discovered this little secret, library officials, uh, officials rather issued a statement saying, we assure you that this participant will not be involved in any future Houston Public Library programs. In our review of our process and of this participant, we discovered that we failed to complete a background check as required by our guidelines. We deeply regret this oversight and the concern this may cause our customers. We realize this is a serious matter. Well, that's a, something of an understatement. Well, the Federalist's Joy Pullman uh, says this about the oversight. Drag Queen Storytime, it's spreading to libraries all across the country, including right here, mostly, but not exclusively in uh, deeply Democratic locales. It even has a, a national PR webpage featuring an image of a... Um, scared toddler staring at a man dressed up in drag while the child's mother encourages the child to get over the apprehension. Worse, she points out, notice that this is the exact opposite of what sexual assault prevention programs teach people to do. Pay attention to and act on your feelings of discomfort rather than overrule them. Child molesters are known for grooming potential victims, including by getting them used to ignoring worries and warnings from their conscience, confusing them about what's normal and accepting increasingly um, transgressive behavior. But that's the very definition and purpose of drag queen story time to teach kids to ignore their own internal moral compass, making them easier prey and introducing life changing dysphoria that otherwise would not have occurred. Now, I'm not suggesting and uh, neither was the um, a writer, uh, Pullman, that uh, 
uh, every transsexual is a um, uh, is a pedophile. That's not the the point. But it does. It is designed to lower the um, inhibitions of young children, despite their initial response. Uh, it's not just the library hour, as Arnold uh, Allert uh, has recounted on more than one occasion. Curriculums being introduced all over the nation to indoctrinate children, some as young as four, on homosexual behavior and gender identity. Now, this includes information on uh, sexual behavior that adults don't need, um, never mind prepubescent children, to know about. And it includes outright lies about what it means to be homosexual, like if a boy loves a boy, they're gay. That is um, uh, deeply confusing to a young child who otherwise just wants to catch frogs and play tag in a playground with his buddies. Well, Pullman uh, concludes that queering schools, and I'm quoting, and story times doesn't need to involve actual child molesters to pose a clear threat to children. Indeed, this isn't education. It's child abuse and certainly indoctrination. Meanwhile, there are at least 787 students at Pennsylvania's Honesdale High School, but only one of them seemed to know about a major change in the school's rules. The other found out the most traumatic way possible when they walked into the girls' locker room and found a teenage boy in women's underwear. For at least one 15-year-old sophomore, the situation was terrifying. Tony Perkins points out on the Daily Signal that it was Um, First period, as she recalls, and I had gym class and I walked in to change with all my friends. And while I was putting on my pants, I heard a man's voice. So I turned around and he's standing there on the opposite aisle looking at me. I glanced down and I could tell that he was wearing women's underwear and what was underneath it, end quote. When the boy stared back at her and the entire group of partially dressed girls, she was horrified. When she got home that afternoon, she told her mom and dad what had happened. Well, it turns out the students weren't the only ones who'd never been notified about the policy. Still in shock, they called the principal and Wayne County superintendent. Neither was particularly sorry about the girl's experience, and to prove it, they refused to lift a finger to help. The girl's only option was to wait outside the locker room, a place designated for them, until the boy inside was finished. Well, that's completely unfair, according to her lawyer, Andrea Shaw, arguing that essentially the school is punishing the girls for wanting to use their own space. The school's only solution for my client was for her to wait outside the locker room until the individual of the opposite sex was finished changing. And then she went in and was late for gym class and also late for her second period class, Shaw says. Their solution made it clear that they believed that my client was the problem. Just to the south of uh, Boyertown, Alexis uh, Lightcap ran into the same situation. No one prepared us, warned us, or counseled us about the boys they'd find in their restrooms and locker rooms. And they were just as unsympathetic when the girls complained about it there. Like this sophomore, Alexis uh, thought the adult's job was to protect students. Instead, she got the same cold shoulder from administrators who uh, seemed to be more concerned about looking politically incorrect than guarding their girls' privacy. Because of that, these girls are being put in an impossible situation, Uh, Shaw argues in her formal complaint to the U.S. Department of Education. Given the culture's treatment of LGBT issues, she has to choose between her privacy and ostracism. Now that Wayne County is taking the boys' side, girls are unbearably uncomfortable and not just her client. Other students have come forward from the cross-country team and said that they object to changing in front of him. Parents are worried about overnight trips and whether the male will be assigned the same hotel room. Girls aren't using the restroom during school because they're worried they're going to run into a male classmate. And others are concerned that the teachers will retaliate if they bring up how uneasy they are. It's ironic, then, Shaw writes, that the district is so particular about its dress code. 
Female students, the coach says, cannot wear skin-tight clothing, yoga pants, spandex, tights, form-fitting blouses, or short tops that expose a bare midriff, short dresses, or skirts, shorts. Yet the school does not find it objectionable to permit a female-attracted male student to view girls while they are undressing or for the girls to see the male student's genitalia outlined in girls' underwear. Well, the whole point of having separate bathrooms or locker rooms, she goes on, is to provide an area for individuals to dress and undress outside of the presence of somebody of the opposite sex. Opening up restroom and locker room facilities to members of the opposite sex is sexual harassment. Well, unfortunately, congressional Democrats don't see it that way. They want to open up everyone's locker rooms, showers, bathrooms to men under the so-called Equality Act. This girl's dad can't believe that. I think any father wouldn't want their child to be exposed to anything, especially at such a young age. Well, the bill has 239 co-sponsors, and one wonders how they'd feel if one of their daughters came home crying because they'd been forced to undress in front of a teenage boy. This is not a partisan issue. Kristen Wagoner of the Alliance Defending Freedom insists in a great op-ed for The Hill. Feminist lesbians uh, who disagree with me about almost everything agree with me on this point but have been shouted down within their communities because they insist that women's private spaces are for women. We all can agree that individuals with gender dysphoria deserve compassion and dignity, but no amount of self-perception can make a man a woman, nor change the reality of what being a woman is, she added. My privacy, my daughter's privacy, and my mother's privacy simply don't depend on what a man thinks about his gender. By the way, there's one teenage girl who is filing a civil rights suit Uh, to claim that she has been, um, her rights have been violated. We'll follow that story and let you know what happens next. Well, you might have heard the the phrase grow up when you were in your 20s or um, at some time in your early adulthood. Well, there's a new uh, UK study that suggests that People don't become adults until their 30s. Well, that may in fact be true in practice. I'm not sure biologically one can make that argument in the 21st century. But nonetheless, um, you might have an official reason as to why you're not acting like a mature adult. People don't become fully adult until they're in their 30s, according to brain scientists. Currently, the UK law says you become a mature adult when you reach the age of 18. Scientists who study the brain and nervous system say the age at which you become an adult is different from for everyone. Research suggests people aged 18 are still going through changes in the brain, which can affect behavior and make them more likely to develop mental health disorders. Professor Peter Jones of Cambridge University says, what we're really saying is that to have a definition of when you move from childhood to adulthood looks increasingly absurd. It's as much more nuanced transition that takes place over three decades. He adds, I guess systems like the education system, the health system, and the legal system make it convenient for themselves by having definitions. When you reach 18, you can vote. You can buy alcohol, get a mortgage, and are also treated as an adult if you get in trouble with the police. Despite this, the professor says, he believes experienced criminal judges recognize the difference between a 19-year-old defendant and a hardened criminal in their late 30s. I think the system is adapting to what's hiding in plain sight, that people don't like the idea of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. There isn't a childhood and then an adulthood. People are on a pathway. They're on a trajectory. Professor Jones is one of a number of experts who are taking part in a neuroscience meeting hosted by the Academy of Medical Sciences in Oxford, Determined to suggest that you don't officially become an adult, at least physiologically and biologically speaking, until you're in your, not 30, but 30s. I wonder what the greatest generation would have to say about that. Those who 
defeated communism on the battlefield. I wonder what generations previous who didn't have the luxury of leisure uh, that we have today, who had to take on responsibilities early in life, far before their 30s. Uh, But this study suggesting that it's not until then that you are officially an adult from a biological or neurological standpoint. Oh, really? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Internal Revenue Service has a rule that allows ministers to exclude the amount of a housing allowance from their taxable income. Well, late last year, there was a case in which an atheist group challenged that rule, claiming it's an unconstitutional establishment of religion. Well, on the 15th of this month, the three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit disagreed and unanimously upheld that rule. Well, since Congress imposed an income tax in 1913, the rules for what constitutes income have become increasingly complex. What about when an employer provides housing or compensates an employee for its cost? In 1923, Congress enacted a statute excluding a church-provided parsonage from a minister's taxable income and later extended that to a housing allowance. Well, the Freedom From Religion Foundation prepared to challenge that rule by first giving its own co-presidents a housing allowance similar to what a minister might receive. On their 2012 and 2013 income tax returns, those individuals claimed refunds based on excluding that allowance from their taxable income. The IRS denied their refund claim because they are not ministers and they sued. Well, the U.S. District Court in Wisconsin ruled in favor of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, striking down the IRS rule. Well, three Seventh Circuit judges um, and uh, uh, reviewed that district court's decision. Uh, Brennan wrote the unanimous opinion. Well, few uh, areas of constitutional law are as confused as the Supreme Court's Establishment Clause cases. The court has used several different tests to determine whether a government action is an establishment of religion, enabling lower courts to pick and choose which one to produce a desired result. Well, in this case, the district court applied criterion from the Supreme Court's 1971 decision in Lemon versus Kurtzman that requires that statutes or regulations have a secular legislative purpose. The court said that the true purpose of the IRS rule was to provide aid for a group of religious persons. The Seventh Circuit disagreed, noting that the IRS rule puts ministers on equal footing with secular employees who receive the very same benefit. Well, the IRS code has many provisions that cover different uh, subsets of taxpayers. This one involves employees whose housing can be used for the benefit of their employer. That certainly includes ministers. Well, the court also said that this IRS rule actually avoids excessive government entanglement with religion, another criterion from the Lemon decision. It avoids, for example, intrusive inquiries about the particular activities of a church and its ministers or about which activities happen on which premises. Well, the court also reviewed the IRS rule under a more recent Supreme Court test in Greece versus Galloway. The Supreme Court held that the Establishment Clause must be understood in light of historical practices and understandings. Well, Congress, the court acknowledged, has enacted federal tax exemptions for religious organizations as far back as 1802 and today. More than 2,600 federal and state tax laws provide religious exemptions. Well, this long history, the court said, satisfies the historical significance test. Well, just as the Seventh Circuit had to use the right criteria or test to evaluate the district court's decision, we must always use the right standard when evaluating a court decision as well. That standard doesn't include whether we like the result. Courts have to decide cases based on an impartial interpretation and application of the law, no matter which side wins or whose agenda might be advanced. 
Brennan's opinion is a straightforward, impartial application of the Supreme Court's Establishment Clause precedents. Those precedents admittedly can be confusing and even contradictory, but in this case, the Seventh Circuit Court applied the right ones in the right way. Will it be appealed? Most probably. We'll certainly continue to follow the story. When Jimmy Carter left office in 1981, the return home to Plains was not easy. His once flourishing farm business was, was more than $1 million in debt, and he faced the prospect of selling the land that his family had been um, living on for 150 years. Then a friend pointed out that Carter, at the tender age of 56, could expect to live at least until 80 years old. I had one disturbing reaction, Carter wrote in his 1998 book, The Virtues of Aging. What was I going to do for the next 25 years? Well, let's just say a lot. From establishing the Carter Center, being awarded the Nobel Prize, to building Habitat for Humanity homes and writing more than two dozen books. Well, March 22nd of this year marks yet another milestone for the former president. While it's not his birthday, Carter becomes the oldest living former president in U.S. history. At the age of 94 years and 172 days, he passes George Herbert Walker Bush, who was 94 years, 171 days when he died last November. We at the Carter Center sure are rooting for him and are grateful for his long life of service that has benefited millions of the world's poorest people, the center said in a statement. An archivist with the Carter Presidential Library said nothing special was planned to mark the event at the library. But it certainly was uh, one worthy of mentioning. After the country's first president, George Washington, lived to be 67, only a handful of others have lived into their 90s. Already, Carter had set for a presidential record for living the longest number of years out of office at 38 years. But then again, he started the job young. When he was elected in 76, Carter was 52, and making him the 17th youngest elected president in history. The median age for accession to the presidency is 55 and three months. What could possibly be good about growing old? The most obvious answer, of course, is to consider the alternative to aging, Carter wrote in 1998. But there are plenty of other good answers, many based on our personal experiences and observations. Well, in August of 2015, he revealed that doctors had found four small melanoma lesions on his brain. The discovery followed the removal of a lesion on his liver that took about 10 percent of the organ. He began receiving drug treatments along with radiation therapy and said at the time that he would cut back significantly on his schedule. He continued receiving treatments until the following February when doctors told him they were no longer needed. In 2017, he was briefly hospitalized in Winnipeg, Manitoba, after he became dehydrated. Historians consider him one of the greatest former presidents ever, if not the greatest, which tells you something about the virtue of time. He certainly was not considered so at the end of his one term. Following his bitter 1980 defeat at the hands of Ronald Reagan, or his involuntary retirement, as he calls it, becoming the first full one-term president since Hoover to lose re-election, Carter turned himself into something else. In 1982, he started the Carter Center in Atlanta to advance human rights and promote democracy. The center mediates conflicts, monitors electoral processes in support of free elections. Carter traveled the world for elections and worked with the Carter Center to eradicate disease. His hard work during post-presidential life was recognized in 2002 when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. As we've grown older, Carter wrote of himself and wife Rosalind, the results have been surprisingly good. Jimmy Carter, the oldest former U.S. president, at age 94 and 172 days. George Herbert Walker Bush, 
at 94 and 171 days, was the second oldest, followed by Gerald Ford, who lived to his 93rd year and 165th day, Ronald Reagan, his 93rd year, 120th day, John Adams, age 90, 247 days, and Herbert Hoover, 90 plus 71 days. Congratulations, former President Carter. Tomorrow is Friday. We intend to lighten up. I hope you will join us. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your wonderful day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.